Hello, I am Anika Orock, author of The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, and you are listening to the fabulous Baseball and Barbecue Podcast with Jeff and Len. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours, too. The only problem is... After I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. He's Joe's very close friend, a fellow Hall of Famer, and a member of Monument Park, a 10-time world champion, Yogi Berra. Welcome to episode number 67 of Baseball and BBQ. I'm Len Aberman, and I am here with the incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. How you doing, Len? Doing great, Jeff. I am super excited. And what else is new? Because we have two very special guests today. Big show. Big show today. Yeah, really big. We have, you know what, Jeff? First of all, tell us, you tell us the first person we have. You ever hear of uh, Lawrence Peter Barra? Ooh better known as Yogi. I, I think he may have had many Hall of Fame years in an incredible career. He, it was incredible. And we have the author of Yogi, the man behind the mask, John Pessa. A fantastic, fantastic book. A must read for any baseball fan. Must read. And not only that, we don't even have to say anything about Yogi because I think the, he said it all. There's no need to say anything except that Yogi Berra, one of my favorite players of all time. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's an American icon. Yes. And then after and then after Yogi, we have none other than Jeff Reiser of Dead Broke Barbecue, who is one of those people that we we found. I don't know if he found us, we found him, but it was a mutual finding you know, on Facebook and we instant messaged. And all I know is I found his YouTube channel and I am so glad that we did because not only is, is he becoming such a, uh, an influential force in the world of barbecue and on YouTube, he is just one heck of a nice guy. I mean, really just a great guy. Speaking to him was great. Absolutely great. Yeah. But before we do, Jeff, yes. could you, one, give everybody, how do, how do they get in touch with us? How do our adoring fans get in touch with the show? Well, they can participate by giving us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us. Our email address is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Join the page. Leave some comments. We have our uh, YouTube, which is at Baseball at BBQ. We have our Twitter. Tweet us. Tweet, tweet, tweet at Baseball at BBQ. Our Instagram page is Baseball and Barbecue. Barbecue is all spelled out. And we have our website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com, where you can get all our past episodes. Wow. Even if we went into the Witness Protection Program, they would somehow be able to get in touch with us. That is a lot of ways to get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you guys. Now, Jeff, 
we've got to talk about a company we've mentioned before on the show. We've had them on the show. Their products are fantastic. You know what I'm talking about. It's baseballbbq.com. They have grilling tools and clothing, and they're just, they're growing. They have some fantastic items. And let me just, let me just read you a little bit from them. They have a campaign going on right now. Thanking our heroes of the summer, coaches. They're giving 10% off customization orders. That's laser engraving. They actually will engrave your spatula because the handle of the spatula is a baseball bat. I mean, how, how great is that? They have the grill, uh, they have the forks, right? With the baseball handle and they'll engrave that. They're giving 10% off on those orders when you use the promo code COACH10. That's C-O-A-C-H-10 at checkout. I'm looking at their site now. I see a lot of handles that say COACH and then the person's name. Their products are fantastic. They have cutting boards. They have the shirts. They have the hats. Some wonderful products. And not only that, Jeff, but the people that we've spoken to from there. Okay, which, like I said, they were on one of our episodes, I think episode, what was it, 65, right? They were on episode 65. Yeah. They are so nice. Now, the sale, I want you guys to take advantage of this sale. You're definitely going to want to buy the items, so why not get the 10% off? The sale ends Sunday, August 16th, okay? So you have a week, because this is being released on Saturday, August 8th. So you have a week to take advantage of the sale. You might as well save the 10%. Their products are beautiful. It's baseballbbq.com. Check them out, guys. You will not be sorry. All right. Sounds great, Len. And yeah, check out their, their website, Coach 10, do it before August 16th. Absolutely. All right, Jeff. I think we've, we've spoken enough, and I think it's time to bring on none other than John Pessa. Thank you, John Pessa, to talk all about Yogi. John Pessa is the New York Times bestselling author of The Game, a critically acclaimed examination of the power brokers who built Major League Baseball into a multi-million dollar business. A founding editor of ESPN, the magazine, where he ran the investigative team, Pessa has also managed the sports departments for Newsday and the Hartford Courant. All that pales in comparison to what he has now done. He has written the biography of one of the most beloved and well-known personalities, sports or otherwise, you and I have ever known. Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, is a can't-put-down book. You will love every story as you learn about the life of Lawrence Barra, otherwise known as Yogi. We are so thankful he is joining us tonight and we thank him for making this night necessary. <laughs> Thanks, Len. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here with you guys. So, John, we start right away with the yogiism. The man was so much more than yogiisms, but everybody does know all of these, you know, the things that, as he said, if I said half the things they said I said, right? Right. But he did say that. He did. He did address the audience and say thank you for making this night necessary. 
I think that was one of the reasons why Yogi decided he was never going to be a public speaker. That was a, he had asked, that was at Yogi Berra night, 1947, his rookie year, hometown, comes back with the Yankees. He actually is, is, has running a fever and has a uh, wicked sore throat and was hospitalized and came out of the hospital just to do that night, which was a big night for the local people. And uh, he had asked Bobby Brown, his, his um, teammate, fellow rookie, um, and a doctor, budding doctor, to write it for him. And he said, no, just keep it simple. And they're on the field, and Yogi says that, and the players near fall down laughing. And eventually, Yogi started laughing about it, and he went over, hugged his mom and dad, and everyone had a good time. But that one stuck with him his whole life. Well, let me, uh, this is a, a great book. I, I loved it. I know Len loved it. I thought I knew a lot about Yogi Berra. I mean, I read a couple of his books. I mean, obviously, there's dozens of Yogi books. I guess my first question is, what, what was the reason to write, write this great biography of Yogi Berra. What was the thought process behind it? Well, I'll tell you, my father, father's favorite baseball player was Mickey, Ma- excuse me, was Yogi Berra. And I didn't see Yogi until the tail end of his career in 1960. He was a, um, you know, a platoon outfielder, still a really good hitter, but not a regular catcher, although he did catch 22 innings in 1962 and um, in one game. And I just... You know, he kept describing this dynamic player to me. And, you know, I was looking for my next subject after my last book. And I wanted to do someone also that I would feel good about doing and someone who really interested me. And I said, you know, let's go back and, and look at the player who was your father's, father's favorite player and, the, and just how good he was. I'm, I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. And I was a sports editor. I helped start ESPN Magazine. I know a lot about sports. I was stunned at how good of a player Yogi Berra really was. You know, I knew the three MVPs. I didn't know he finished second and third and fourth in the years around those three MVPs. I didn't know that he was the best player on the best team ever in baseball in 1949 to 1953. They win five straight World Series, and, and Yogi Berra, not Joe DiMaggio, who's at the tail end of his career, not Mickey Mantle, who's at the beginning of his career. Those five years, Yogi Berra was the best player on that team. And that, you know, I think his, his persona, I think the yogiisms and, you know, the, the big personality that, that people associate with him oversh- actually overshadows what a great baseball player he was. So that was, a, you know, those were a lot of the reasons why I decided this is the guy that I really want to spend the next three, four years of my life with. It's evident that you did spend a long time. The book is a big book, which is, but I read it so fast when I, when I see this book and it's over 500 pages and I, I couldn't put it down. I was serious. I could not put this book down. You start at the beginning of his life from the, the moment he wants to be a baseball player, who wants to be a major league baseball player, extremely talented, but he has two brothers who the father, who had to support the family, right? right. The, the father, Pietro, said, you have to support the family. So two brothers who could have been major league baseball players. and did not go in that in that way. Yogi's the youngest of four boys. He had a younger sister, but being the fourth boy, he was really the baby of the family. And he his he to his dying day, Yogi said his older brother Tony was the best baseball player in the family. 
And I spent a lot of time on the Hill, which is the Italian section in St. Louis. And I had the, the blessing of getting to be friendly with three gentlemen who grew up with Yogi. Um, so they knew him from the time he was four or five years old. And they told me what a great player Tony Barrow was, what a, what a really good player Mike Barrow was. Um, both of them had offers for tryouts, for, you know, one for a contract. Um, even his brother, John, who didn't, wasn't as, as good as the first two, also had interest from major league teams. And But the father, you know, came over from the old country, from, from Italy, didn't understand baseball. The only game that he really knew was soccer and said, base, you know, games are for boys. You're a man, you're leaving school, you got to get a job. And that was true for the, for the first three. One ends up being uh, working in a bakery his whole life. The other one ends up working in a woman's shoe factory his whole life. The other one ends up being a waiter and then manages Yogi's bowling alley that he started with Phil Rizzuto in New Jersey. And, um, and they, you know, they banded together and said, listen, we'll work extra hours we got we can get some extra shifts we'll bring in the money let yogi try and uh, of course then it wasn't yogi it was Lottie, right. which was lawrence was his given name and, mm-hmm. and his mother who never couldn't speak english understood it but never spoke english the best she could do was Lottie, and that's that was his name on the hill forever no one really called him yogi it was always Lottie, and it wasn't until he was 17 years old playing american legion ball that someone tagged him with that nickname which was what a blessing because you know larry's a pretty popular you know pretty common name but yogi everybody knows who yogi is when you say yogi can he speak italian at home oh yeah Absolutely. No, I mean, his mom, like I said, his mom, you know, understood English, didn't speak it. The, 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 uh, the language on the hill, um, which is to this day still a, a heavily Italian enclave, goes going back all the way to, to Yogi's parents' generation. The, the, the first language on the hill was Italian. Hmm. And his best friend, uh, is, as we know, is Joe Gagriola, lives across the street. Two guys who make it to Hall of Fame, different paths, but they both make it there. His father, Giovanni, and, and Pietro Berra were friends in Italy. They, they came over a year apart. They took different paths to St. Louis, but eventually both end up in St. Louis together. And they, live, they end up living across the street from each other. And Yogi is five and Joe is four when, they, when the two families moved there. And they, they knew each other their entire lives. I mean, Joe Garagiola until the day Yogi died said there wasn't a day in my life when Yogi Berra wasn't my friend. Wow. Branch Rickey, he picked a great person to break the color barrier with uh, Jackie Robinson, but he kind of missed on Yogi Berra, didn't he? He missed. Swing and a miss. Yeah. Branch Rickey was looked at as, well, the father of the farm system. He was supposed to be the greatest talent judge in the, in the history of baseball. And one of the things, I mean, baseball is tough. I mean, how many number one draft picks in, you know, in the draft never make it? I mean, there's so wow. many players that are drafted in the first, second, third round, never make it. And you hear like a guy like Don Mattingly picked on the 27th round right. you know, for Yankees. And uh, so Ricky had the talent of looking at a teenager and seeing and being able to project what this kid's going to look like. Um, and be like as an athlete in, in his early 20s. And he took one look at a six foot, 180 pound Joe Garagiola, good looking guy, well spoken, and could hit. I mean, he could really play and said, This is my guy. Then he's got this guy who's, you know, five, seven and a half, 
got long arms of a guy who's like 6'2". He's got short, stubby legs. He's got shoulders so thick you don't see his neck. And he goes, I'm sorry. I don't care how good he hit in this tryout that we have for him. He's just not going to be a ball player. And tells Yogi to his face, you're never going to be more than a AAA player, and we're looking for players that can go all the way. And you're right. Ricky didn't miss on much, but he missed on that one big time. Yes. <laughs> so – Yogi finally makes it to the majors, and you know, like I said before, I thought I knew a lot about Yogi, and it turns out I didn't because I had no idea that you know, I knew he was a great catch. I mean, he's on the Mount Mount Rushmore of catchers. Yet, in the beginning, his pitchers didn't like throwing to him. I found that fascinating. I have no idea why, and while well, you're playing the book, so why don't you tell us? Well, you know, he didn't, and uh, I, same with you, I thought he was a great catcher. I mean, my father always told me he was a great catcher. You know, he plays one year, I mean, he was, a, he was an outfielder and a second baseman primarily, coming, you know, playing through the kids' leagues, playing in the WPA, you know, the, the Depression era uh, leagues, and he plays American Legion ball after Branch Rickey turns him down for two years. And his first year, he plays second, second base in outfield. His, th- his second year, they, uh, they didn't have a catcher. So he volunteered to play catcher. And so he caught one year American Legion ball. Um, he ends up signing with the Yankees. And they, they make him into a catcher. He plays one year um, at Norfolk, Class C, before he's drafted and, and, and goes over and fights in D-Day. And uh, so he's got two years of minor league ball, comes back, plays two-thirds of a season at Newark before they bring him up. So this is not a lot – a guy who's gotten a lot of coaching and a lot of polish is catching. And he has, like, all these mechanical flaws that make him a bad catcher, The one of the worst being he would catch the ball in the strike zone. And, you know, you're supposed to – we see it all the time on TV. You catch the ball outside the strike zone, you pull it in. You know, you're always pulling the ball in to the strike zone. Well, Yogi would stab at the ball. So he would take the, a strike and he would – send it out of the strike zone and the, and the pitchers would lose a strike. Never a great thing for, for a catcher. And he, he couldn't throw. He had a great arm, but the ball, he hit us. He hit an umpire in the head. He hit uh, a <laughs> with couldn't could not throw. And split his time between catcher and the outfield in 1948. Last 50 games of the season, he plays outfield. And he hits about 350, hits about uh, eight home runs, knocks in about 40 runs. And at the end of the season, all the the Yankee management and the writers are all saying Yogi's going to be a right fielder. And then in an, um, in an argument, George Weiss, the famous general manager of the Yankees, fires Bucky Harris, who had only won a World Series and come in second in his two years as a Yankee manager – fires and brings in Casey Stengel. And this is a time when catchers are hitting 240, knocking in about 45 runs, but their job was to call a game and be a great defensive player. And, and Stengel figured, if I have a guy who can hit like Berra and can catch, I want him to catch. So he brings in Bill Dickey. Dickey takes one look at him, sees all these mechanical flaws, and dares Yogi to become a great catcher works him two hours after practice every single day throughout the entire spring training at the end of spring training predicts not only is this guy going to be a good catcher, he's going to be the best catcher in the American league. And that's what he ended up being. Wasn't it Stengel that said when, when he was managing the Mets that the first player he'd pick is a catcher because otherwise you'd have a lot of pass balls. Did you say that? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you what, 
you know, even Bucky Harris, who was his first manager, liked Yogi. But one of the things that really surprised me, you know, again, a lot of the things that I learned doing this book was how much discrimination and how much verbal abuse Yogi faced. Um, right. All through his career, really. And he comes up and, and you know, I didn't know how much discrimination Italian-Americans faced in the 30s, 40s, 50s, right into the 60s. And I didn't know how much verbal abuse Yogi suffered. I mean, people made fun of how he looked. People would throw bananas on the field when he came up to bat. People would hang from the dugout and was scratching under their arm, acting like a monkey. People would ask him, you know, how was that tree that you slept in last night? People named him the captain of the all-ugly team. People told him that he was dumb. Always told him that he was dumb. And uh, I had I had no idea that these are the things that that Yogi faced, you know, coming up. And I'm sorry, but I lost the thread of the question. I should have warned you that I go down the tangents sometimes and I get so involved in my stories that I forget the original question. He's, he's one of us, Jeff. He's yeah, exactly. <laughs> we you, do the same thing. You know, I, I noticed in, in the book you were saying how, how Italian-Americans were discriminated against. You know, the nickname for Joe DiMaggio. I mean, that's a derogatory statement today. You know, he was called the, the Big Dago. And now, uh, you know, that's obviously a derogatory right. statement. Uh, but, uh, you know, Joe DiMaggio. I know. I, and, you know, and, and the one that really got me was Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, New York Times, Arthur Daly, wrote a lot of columns about Yogi. But early on, one of the col- he writes a column and the title of the column is Nature Boy. He's called Nature Boy. He's called the Ape. He's called Quasimodo. I mean, and these are this is in print. You know, these 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 are these are professional sports writers. His, you know, even his teammates joked about uh, things like that. And actually, it was Casey who kind of when he came in and and uh, you know saw all the abuse and knew that Yogi was like okay, so he didn't show that it bothered him, but he knew inside that it really bothered him and asked, asked some of the, you know, asked his teammates to kind of tone it down, asked the writers to tone it down. And actually Casey, which I, who I also learned a lot about doing this book, Casey didn't talk to, to, to the players. The only player that he talked to was Yogi. And Yo, it was Yogi who met with the, uh, with the pitchers to form the game plans. Um, this was not, when it came to baseball, Yogi's, Yogi's smarts was off the charts. Things that Yogi liked. He knew a ton about it. He loved movies. He loved baseball. And, and these were things, you know, he, his, his baseball IQ was, was just off the charts. So he goes, he's a year for the Yankees, his rookie year, right? I, I, and then he enters the war, right? He's a, he becomes a war hero. Yeah, the, the thing that, you know, a, a couple of interesting things about that. He, you know, his, his rookie you know, his first season in the minors is in Norfolk. Um, so this is in 1942. And so we're in, in 1943. So we're in the war. And and that's where the Navy, the Navy is based in, in Norfolk, Virginia. Places is, is, is crowded as is, is all heck. And they had a two great baseball teams in Norfolk. The um, you know, everyone from Roosevelt to the to the head of the Navy understood baseball was something that would be of great importance for the morale of America during the war. So they started the baseball team and they would have professional baseball teams come through. And on the baseball team in Norfolk was Phil Rizzuto, Pee Wee Reese, Dom DiMaggio, Eddie Robinson, 
a whole host of, of major league players. And the manager saw Yogi play against uh, his team and said, you know what? I'm losing a bunch of these guys next year. They're going to be moved to active to, you know, to combat. When you get drafted, volunteer for the Navy. You know, I'll pick, you know, I'll have you on my team. You'll play baseball during the war. So he volunteers for the Navy, never gets a call. And he's, you know, he, he's in basic training and Yogi is kind of a hyperactive guy. And, and he's kind of bored in basic training and they ask people to volunteer for a secret mission and Yogi's hand jumps right up and he volunteers for a secret mission and, and so secret, he wasn't allowed to tell his parents where he was going and what he was doing and what he had volunteered for was something called a rocket boat, which was a a 36 foot wooden hull boat with a slab of metal on a sheet metal on the top and three machine guns two rocket launches in the back, and they were the leading edge of the invasion in Normandy. They were literally the first wave of boats to reach the, uh, to reach the shore. They set it up 300 yards from the shore, and their job was to lob rockets into machine gun nests during D-Day um, to allow the soldiers a fighting chance of getting on the beach. And then he had the unfortunate task of when the, when the battle was over was to fish out the, the American dead bodies out of the water, bring them back to the main mm. ship, you ship back home, spent 13 years in combat, ends up getting uh, shot in the hand, which lucky for him and for us as baseball fans, it doesn't affect his baseball career, but he doesn't put in for the Purple Heart until the uh, end of combat duty because he doesn't want to worry his mother back home in St. Louis. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, this guy lives through the depression, you know, spends 13 months in, in, in world war two, you know, before he ever gets to be a baseball player. I'll tell you one last thing about, about the, about the war. Bob Feller was one, was the first baseball player to sign up for, um, for the war. And a lot of baseball players signed up for the war, but Feller was just gung ho and he goes into the Navy and he comes out and and the, the war's over. And he's pitching a Yogi, and he's constantly throwing at Yogi's head. Now, Feller's, a, you know, Feller's throwing 99 back when 99 was, was um, something that nobody ever did. And finally, Yogi goes, you know, what? What is it? Why are you throwing at me? And Because uh, everybody liked Yogi. And he goes, I can't respect someone who didn't serve. He goes, what are you talking about? I was at D-Day best friends from, the, from, you know, from that day on. Came to Yogi's Museum in, in, in uh, Montclair, did a sign, book signing, raised money for the museum. You know, just everything changed. John, did you, did you get to meet Yogi at all or you started working you know, on this? In my, in my earlier in my career, I covered, I covered the Yankees some and, you know, I, I saw him not as a player, but as a coach and, you know, talked to him in group settings, but never, never one-on-one, unfortunately. Best friend, Claire Smith, who wrote for me at the Hartford Current, later at the New York Times, covered Yogi and she was sort of like my Yogi whisperer. I mean, she spent a lot of time with Yogi and she broke in in the early 80s when women sports writers, and she was one of the first women sports writers and the first African-American sports writer uh, covering the Yankees. And uh, so she really helped fill in some of the gaps on the, on the personal dynamics. We are speaking with John Passa, who has written an incredible book, a biography, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. In the book, I just jotted down some questions. We go out of order and I hope that's okay. So do I. That's great. <laughs> You mentioned in the book that at the time 
uh, Hanna-Barbera came out with uh, Yogi Bear and, and and people mentioned, you know, is it based on you or whatever? Did he ever do anything with it? Like try and get money from it or. Well, Yogi, Yogi wasn't, wasn't happy about that. And actually, I mean, Hanna-Barbera, which became big and famous, you know, right. this is 1957, I'm pretty sure. And they were, they had just started. And, and actually the cartoon that they developed was Huckleberry Hound. And one of the co-stars of, of uh, Huckleberry Hound was a character, Yogi Bear. Excuse me, Yogi Bear. If you ever want to get Yogi mad, all you had to do was call him Yogi Bear. And that was one of the few things that would really get him upset. And anyway, and it's just, first of all, Yogi Bear, Yogi Bear. Okay. And it's like, right. and, and the way the characters, the, the character was built, it was kind of like kind of funny, a little bit goofy. And I mean, it was mm-hmm. clearly based on him, even though the producers absolutely denied that it was based on Bera. He who considered suing and didn't, I think the, I think he figured, uh, the family figured, you know, the publicity of suing a child's cartoon character that everybody likes was probably worse than having it out there. So they backed off of that, but he was never, he was never very happy about it, especially after Yogi Bear graduated from co-stardom to his own show. And, and like I said, if you ever called and people did make that mistake, it's an easy Mm -hmm. one to make and call and call him Yogi Bear. He he would that that would upset that was one of the few things you could say that would upset him. Right. Hey boo boo, we're gonna have a picnic. That's uh hey, Ranger See, that's the other thing. I do believe that that the sidekick who was supposed to you know short and smart, right? That was Phil Rizzuto. Who was oh. ah. <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> so as men, Len mentioned, we go out of order, so I'm gonna bring it back to 1947, his first year, uh, wins the World Series. Most story, which I've never known without reading your book, is that he almost caught the, the first no hitter in World Series history was born out of way, 1947, being formed by uh, Bill Bevins. Yep. And it was Yogi's throw to second base, and you, you mentioned he had trouble throwing, caused him to, uh, they, well, they lost to the, got a hit, no, lost no hitter. Of course, he goes on and catches the perfect game years later, but <laughs> this is the first, could have been the first one. Bevins goes into the ninth inning with a no hitter and ten walks, and I mean the guy. The guy literally, I don't think, pitched another major league baseball game after that. Just wrecked his arm in that game. But he's got a no hitter. No, never been a no hitter in in baseball. So the eleventh walk, the name is going to escape me. I believe it was Algie and Frito, and he steals second base. Yogi throws high. Rizzo's got to go up to get it, comes down safe. Okay, now there's a man on second. And Bucky Harris orders a intentional walk. So now you're putting the winning run on base. And Bevins has thrown about 145 pitches. And uh, Cookie Lavagetto, who's at the end of a very good career, but at the end of his career, Bevins hangs, you know, hangs a curveball. Lavagetto knocks it off the wall. Bevins is winning two to one. And the two and Lavagetto knocks in those two runs and they lose three to two. One hitter. And the two of them just sit there in the locker room, just absolutely devastated. And, you know, it, it did haunt Yogi for years. And when, when he did remember just that game, 
you know, in 19, in 1956, when he came out, you know, in the last inning of that no hitter and, and they were only Yankees were only winning that Larson's game two to nothing at that time. It's like, okay, no walks, no bad throws. Right. And and there were none of either one. Of course. I want to go back to, well, I jump around. Yogi, after his career, and boy, I'm really jumping because I'm passing a lot of things, but after his career, he he became a manager. He managed the Yankees, took them to a World Series, but he didn't win it. Managed the Mets in 73, took them to the World Series, but he didn't win it. But both huge accomplishments. Right. How much did, did you get the feeling from speaking to people that that really bothered him, that he didn't win a World Series as a manager? Yes. And, and I'll tell you what. One, I think it was because of the accomplishment that he wanted that on his resume. He wanted that there. But two, I think that Yogi never got over being called dumb for – you know, every time, you know, not only throughout his career, but every time he managed, the stories came about, is Yogi smart enough to manage? Is Yogi a smart enough guy? And so I think that he, that a big motivation for him managing, especially that the last time when he never should have taken the George, uh, a, a job from George Steinbrenner because Steinbrenner was firing two and three managers a year. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I was the sports editor during those years. I had trouble hiring Yankee writers because nobody wanted to be around that team. And that, that's how crazy it was. But he saw a chance to win. He thought he had a good team. And he really wanted to win that, that World Series. And all three times, his wife, Carmen, wife of 65 years, never, each time she tried to talk him out of managing. And each time he decided, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. And uh, so, yeah, I think that he, he definitely wanted to win that World Series. But, you know, in, in 64, you know, I am a 12-year-old Yankee fan. And, you know, they, they are in, in, you know, second, third place in, in August, you know, battling with the Orioles and the White Sox. And unbeknownst to all of us, the Yankees had already decided that he was fired. And they were they were planning on a replacement. In fact, Ralph Houck was all, you know, the general manager, former backup to Yogi, who had been caught because of Yogi, and probably was jealous of Yogi, which was always the big rumor. And he was supposed to, you know, they they named him manager in 63 when people, you know, it was a secret deal between the Yankee manager and Yogi. They kept it secret for a year. And Houck's job was to uh, mentor a yogi who had never managed before in his life and was going to have to manage his, his, not only his former teammates, but his really good friends, Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford, kind of known to break curfew once in a while. <laughs> and, and so they had, they had fired him. And, you know, the famous harmonica incident with, with Phil Lins, when it was the first time that team had seen Yogi really get mad, Yogi kind of grew into the job. And, and one thing Yogi always thought about as a manager was that, Baseball is not a sprint; it's a marathon, and it's a player's game. And you, you know, I, I made the lineup, I put the players in the position to win. It's their job to win, and you know, if I leave them alone, for, and I, and I got a good team, and I make the right decisions on on the pitchers, we're going to win. Which is exactly what happened in in um, 1964. They end up winning the title, 
they go to the seventh game against a an excellent um, St. Louis Cardinals uh, team. He loses Whitey Ford, who doesn't pitch in the World Series at all. He, you know, Mel Stottlemyre, a rookie, goes nine and three, and he gets hurt in game seven. So he can't make it past the fourth inning. And they lose to Bob Gibson in the seventh game. Seventh game, Yogi goes in thinking he's going to get a two-year contract. And he walks in, and the first thing they say is, "No, we think we got to make a change," and they, and just stun the stun the heck out of him. And you know, he took a job uh, making twenty five thousand dollars as a special assistant to Ralph Halk, and I think it took about a month and a half before he came to terms with the Mets to met to uh, coach under Casey Stengel. Right, and I want to get to the Mets in a, in a few minutes, but I, I, you did mention Carmen. And he met her in, in St. Louis at, at a restaurant. He was taken by her. And they really, that, that was really a, a team. They were really a team. I mean, they were just, he ran everything by her. And they were, she was like, I guess, the financial astute of, of, of family. And they just were really, they made all decisions together. Yes, they were, they were a, a terrific business partners, a terrific marriage. I'll tell you what. You know, an awful lot of marriages do not survive a um, a baseball career. In fact, um, Billy, I don't know if you remember Billy Butler. He was a center fielder for the Dodgers. Yep. And I interviewed him for my first book. And he he, he had formed a group to counsel baseball players uh, about marriage. And, and he said, how many marriages do you think survive a baseball career? I said, I'm just going to guess half. He goes, 80% of baseball players get divorced after their career. This marriage lasted, you know, Yogi and Carmen lasted 65 years until the day Carmen passed away 18 months ahead of Yogi. They did everything together. And and one of the things they did together, it was no surprise that, you know, Yogi in 1948 wasn't happy with his, his salary. In 1949, he, he wasn't happy with his salary, but he got married at the end of, of 48. He already signed for 49. 1950, suddenly Yogi becomes the holdout. And, uh, and then in 1951, Yogi's a holdout. You know, it was Yogi and Carmen that were holding out. And there was a, a great story about that, too, where, where they decided what, was, what did they want, what was the least that they would take, and when they finally came up with those figures, she said that Yogi was a very religious, a religious guy, you know, didn't wear it on his, on his sleeve, but he was a really religious guy. And Carmen, after they decided how much money that they would, at least they would settle for, she said she made him uh, make a promise to God that she, that he wouldn't accept less. And she knew if he made that promise that he wasn't going to break that. And that was true. And after the second holdout, a holdout that went, you know, halfway through spring training, and that was their only recourse because of either you signed or you held out or you didn't play because there was no uh, free agency, you know, in Yogi's day. The Yankees finally started giving Yogi what he wanted. And eventually Yogi be- becomes the third highest player in baseball behind uh, Stan Musial and Ted Williams for like five straight years. That's how good he was. Right, right. And that's nothing that surprised me was, was he was his holding out. Never knew that. <laughs> but, you know, he, tops, he tops out at $65,000 in 1957, right. which in America in, 19, in 1957 is a lot of money. 
So there's a there's a nice website called baseballreference.com. I'll give them a little plug, but they yeah. have a it's a terrific website for baseball fans and yeah. for baseball writers. And one of the things that's that's really cool is they have a salary conversion uh, table that so if you you plug in the year um, and the salary, it's like okay, so what is sixty five thousand dollars worth in in two thousand twenty? Now I can do it, and it was it's worth four hundred and sixty two thousand dollars, which is still a hundred thousand dollars below minimum salary right. for baseball today. Right. What I what I wanted to say is at that time when he was holding out, he didn't trust management. And that, you know, that, that kind of surprised me because he's such a known Yankee, you know, throughout the, his year, Yankee, Yankee, but he didn't trust management, which I... Well, I'll tell you what, you know, Yogi was very shrewd when it came to business and money. And the, the he made one mistake, which was he didn't read his very first contract mm. at all, probably, um, and certainly not closely because the contract actually was, was in an auction, so you could read it on a website. And right on the front, it actually said that the bonus the Yankees gave him, the $500 bonus that Brand Tricky wouldn't give him, was a make-good contract. So Yogi had to make it through the year. So he goes to, to, to Norfolk. Now, Norfolk is a boomtown now because of, of the Navy, and everything costs so much money that he can't afford, he literally can't afford to eat. And I mean, there's one game where he stages a um, a hunger strike, is laying on the floor, saying his belly hurts, and the two other catches were hurt. And his manager said, "What's wrong?" He says, "I'm too hungry to play." And the manager reaches into his pocket and pulls out, you know, a couple of bucks and hands it to Yogi. Runs out and gets two burgers and a couple of cokes, and then plays the rest of the game. So after a month. Yogi's wondering where's the five hundred dollars because five hundred dollars in that time that would have set him you know, for the year. And the, the, uh, the general manager of the, of the minor league team says, you don't get it unless you stay with us the whole season. And he goes, what do you mean? I don't get it. He goes, it's a make good contract. So from that day until the, the end of his time in baseball, he never trusted management again. Wow. Now, John, the thing is you had to be the top, top player to hold out because you're right. If there's any other player that they like feel that. to take your place, right. So these guys, the 24th man on the team, the 25th man on the team, they didn't hold out. They took oh. whatever they were given. Right. And only the fact, a, lot of stars, a lot of stars didn't have the nerve to hold out. I mean, you know, and, and to tell you the truth, you know, it was, a diff- it was also a different time. A lot of these kids who played came from the farm, came from the coal mines. In fact, when Marvin Miller, you know, we'll skip over Yogi just a little bit for this part. When Marvin Miller, uh, when they came to Marvin Miller to, to run the union uh, for them, they made him promise not to take him out on strike. They just wanted a pension. They were just, they felt they, you know, the owners told them they were lucky to be even playing baseball for a living and they believed them. And, you know, you and I and, and Jeff would probably feel like we, you know, we'd give our left arm to play baseball. But you know what? If you're a really good baseball player, you know what you're worth. You know how much money they're bringing in. And the Yankees made a lot of money. And the Yankees were owned by very, very rich men. And, you know, and they didn't, they did. In fact, George Weiss, you know, was looked at as George Weiss. Everyone knew his bonus was determined on how low he kept the payroll. So, you know, Carmen would tell Yogi, you know, we know that he's going to lowball us. So let's set it up here. 
and we know what the what the lease will take. But they expected to get lowballed because you know George Weiss made money by not paying the Yankee players. I want to bring it back to 1953, and there's a chapter in your book where you're you're saying he had a a stomachache due to funiculitis, which Phil Rizzuto says about uh, it's all the chocolate milk he drinks, which ironically he went to you know becomes a part of the chocolate company. My favorite drink. I know Yuhu. I mean, I that one blew me away. I had no idea. First of all, I had no idea that Yogi suffered from colitis. I had no idea that he loved drinking uh, chocolate milk, and that he drank so much chocolate milk that he that he literally um, was wrecking his own stomach. I mean, these were things. You know, people ask me when I started this book, what else is there to say about Yogi? I mean, you know, there's been about a dozen books, the subject of of countless magazine articles and newspaper articles. But you know, I've been I've been doing this like this is my 46th year as a journalist. And you always know that there's, there's so many stories that, that haven't been told. And, you know, go, I go back to the Hill and, and talking to the, to the people that, that grew up with him and about what life was like during the Depression and how they used to chase the, um, the food trucks to the city dump. And they would drop off the rotted fruit and vegetables and they would all follow them and they would have their pen knives and, and they would cut out the, uh, away the rotted fruit and, and find what was still fresh. And that was their treat. And how they would, you know, how his, his brothers, Yogi was a natural right-handed hitter. This is something that I had. Right. Another thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Was a natural right-handed hitter and his brothers sensing that, Maybe this kid really was good enough. You know, he's like seven, eight, nine years old. But when you're that good, you start separating early and said, you know what? If you're going to make it to the major leagues, it's easier to make it as a left-handed hitter. And he just turned around and started batting left-handed, just like that. And in fact, one of his, his um, one of the guys who lived on the street told me that, you know, when they would play baseball behind the school, they would ask him not to hit left-handed because the school was only about the, the school was only about 270 feet from home plate, and Yogi would put the ball on the roof. And they only had one ball during the depression to play with. So if he hit a home run, that was the end of the game. Right. So they asked him to hit right-handed instead of left-handed, and he did. And then he hit it over the head of the left fielder. But at least they could chase and still have the ball and play the rest of the game. Right. <laughs> so there was. I'll tell you what. The book is 506 pages long, not counting the bibliography and the index. And I cut 60 pages out of this book of things that I wrote. And that doesn't count all the stories that I didn't write, uh, knowing that there was no way I could write 700-page book that anyone would buy. Full disclosure, Len and I are both Met fans. And I was speaking, I saw an event that I was, Ed Cranepool was there and said that, he, he said that Yogi blew the 73 World Series because he pitched Tom Seaver on, on short rest, which, you know what? Sandy Koufax pitched the World Series on two days rest, and, and, and the, the manager there was considered a genius. Here, Yogi pitches, you know, Tom Seaver, you know, one of the greatest pitchers ever, and who pitched a very good game that game six, just happened to lose. And, and he's blaming Yogi for making that decision, which, you know, can be debated at that. I don't think that was a dumb decision. I can't tell you how many Mets fans like you are still unhappy about that call <laughs> and, and, and wanted to talk to me about it and kind of like, you know, threw me taking Yogi to task for it. But I got to tell you, you know, Yogi, Yogi was a gut, you know, a gut manager. 
and he's up three games to two. First of all, this team is what finished three games over 500, you know, to win the, to win the uh, NL East beats the big red machine, which is amazing that they did that goes to the world series where they face the defending champion, Oakland A's who will eventually win three straights. One of the, one of the great teams of all time goes up three games to two. He's got the best pitcher in baseball on his team, Tom Seaver. And he goes to Seaver who he had, you know, a kind of a rocky relationship with, but a lot of people had rocky relationships with Tom Seaver. And he asked Seaver, can you go on three days rest? Seaver says, no, he goes, he goes with George Stone who's 12 and three that year. But Hey, if I'm the manager and I got the best pitcher in baseball and I say, can you do it? And he says, yes, I'm going with the best pitcher in baseball. Right. And he gave up three runs against one of the great teams of all time. Right. So if you look about who blew the team, Ed Cranepool, I right. think you look at the hitters on that team <laughs> who could not get two more runs, three more runs, and you win the World Series. You right. need four runs. That's it. You know, <laughs> and you're give up three. And by the way, he, Matt like pitches a great game. In the next game, he gives up two two run home runs. One to Reggie Jackson, Hall of Famer. One to Bert Campanaris, great shortstop. Right. The Mets and the Mets score again. They score one run. Right. And, and they and they lose. You know, this is a team. This was a team with really good pitching, mediocre hitting at best. And he gets into the seventh game of the World Series. I'm sorry. I'm saying that Yogi overachieved with that team. Right. Yes. Oh, and, and, and Seba lost to, oh, by the way, uh, another Hall of Famer, Catholic Hunter, that, that game six. So, yes. No, I can't blame Yogi there. I'm sorry. No. They overachieved just like the 2000 Mets overachieved. <laughs> well, right when, when with Bobby Valentine with that team, nobody yes. expected that team to to be in the World Series. No, it, not at all. Yeah, so he, I think he did great with that team, but he did get he did get rewarded with the contract at the end. Yeah, he yeah. got three more years. Unlike so, unlike the Yank, the way the Yankees repaid him, you know, he was. It was kind of funny because he he was uh, told to come in to see to, to see the uh, the ownership two days later, which was the exact same thing as he was told in 1964. And a friend of his, Dave Anderson from the New York Times, joked, so uh, what do you think? You think they're going to fire you this time? And he goes, hey, don't joke about that. That's exactly what happened the last time. Uh, <laughs> but they don't. They, give, they reward him with a, with a nice three-year contract, which he made, what, two and two? Two and two-thirds years through that. And he got yeah. fired five games over 500 when he got fired on, with that, on that team. John, what's what we mentioned at the beginning? Yogiisms. What what's your favorite yogiism? You know what? It's really hard to pick, but the, I think the one I like mostly because I actually saw it was uh, when you come to the fork of the road, take it. And if, <laughs> and if you go to Montclair and you drive down the, the the street leading towards Yogi's house on Highland Avenue, it's a it, there's a there's a signpost and there's a rock. And on the on the big rock, and on the rock, it's inscribed. When you come to the fork in the road, take it because what it is, it's a circular street that meets at the end, and it hits his street, and you just go down that street, and he's got a, had a beautiful colonial uh, house that the backyard had a spectacular view of the skyline of New York. And so I think that one was my favorite. But you know, one that you 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 alluded to early on which was probably the most accurate one, which he said, you know, I never said everything that I said. And uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, 
he said after the 60 World Series, I mean, I'm a Yankee fan, so this one just absolutely devastated me, was when they lost to the Pirates. They outscored them by like something like 45, 50 runs. And, uh, and of course, that ends up with Bill Mazarowski hitting the home run, the walk-off home run, after the double play grounder hits Tony Kubek in the throat. And I didn't know how bad it was. I was eight years old at the time, and I never really looked it up. They, they thought he fractured his, his larynx. He's laying on the ground spitting up blood from the ball that, mm. that hit a pebble and bounced into, into his neck. And after the game, Yogi's, you know, Yogi told the, the writers, asking, you know, how could you have lost to this team? And he said, you know, we made too many wrong mistakes. And, <laughs> uh, obviously what he meant was we made too many mistakes that, came, right. that they capitalized on. Right. Um, you know, he, he had a, you know, uh, there are some people who are just naturally funny. My best friend growing up in, in, in high school was like that. And Yogi would just, you know, say these things and, you know, everyone would just burst out laughing and they were just, you know, he didn't say all of them. Sometimes writers would see, hear something and say, you know what, that's something Yogi would say. And then they would just attribute it to him. But he said right. an awful lot of them. Right. I, I love the, I love the one where he, um, they asked about his son's making money off of him. And he said, it's uh, better than them making money off life insurance. Yeah. It's, it's better than life insurance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the one, I kind of like the one when he grew up with you and uh, someone calls up and asks Yogi if you who's hyphenated and he says it's not even carbonated. And yeah. he said that's never happened, but uh, <laughs> still he continues. Yeah, so pretty good. Right. Yeah. Now he was um, he he did he did have a knack for turning a funny line that that's yeah. for sure, and he was quite the businessman. The uh, yes. like I said, you investing in Yuhu, yeah. the bowling alley. He worked, I guess, in the off seasons and uh, early in his career. He is quite the businessman, isn't he? You know, one of the interesting things that I, that you know, I was I'm a kid who grew up. I'm the first television generation, and you know, I was born in 1952. And Yogi is, you know, Yogi's career tracks the rise of television. So he is as well known as anyone in America. I mean, first of all, he's on the World Series every, you know, almost every 14 out of the 17 years, he's in the World Series. And, you know, World Series in the 50s, you know, I mean, the three most popular sports in America is baseball, baseball and baseball, and then boxing and horse racing. And right. then, and, and then the NFL and and the NBA, and the you know seven to ten days of the World Series was like the Super Bowl, you know, being every day for seven games for seven games. And he was so he's on there the the game of the week. The Yankees are always on the game of the week, and he's on the Milton Berle show, the Ed Sullivan show, the Perry Como show, waving to the crowds. He is on What's My Line. He's on game shows, and he's doing commercials and he's he was one of the very first people to start making money and serious money doing commercials everything from camel cigarettes to Merlot light to puss and boots um cat food to you know his own yoo you know which he became yeah. the vice president of that company and yeah as a business yogi knew the knew his value he knew his value as an endorser. He knew his value as going on television. I mean, this is a guy who did what, cameos and two movies, one with Marilyn Monroe, one with Doris Day and, 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 and Cary Grant. He was on General. In, in 1962, he played a brain surgeon on General Hospital, Yogi Berra brain surgeon. 
So yeah, he 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 was he he knew how to he, he knew how to turn a buck. There's no question about that. Yeah, he was dumb like a fox. Exactly, <laughs> John. We should let you go unless Jeff, you have anything else. I mean, uh, we could spend all night with you. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and we appreciate all the time. The book is called Yogi: Life Behind the Mask. I just want to ask him, uh, John, about I guess the reunion with, with Steinbrenner at, at took place at the museum. In uh, Montclair, when was that? That was eighty. Oh. That was nineteen ninety nine. It was the end of ninety eight, and um, they, they uh, Susan Waldman, who was then with WFAN, had a great relationship with Steinbrenner, and Steinbrenner always kind of was concerned about dying and dying of Alzheimer's, so that he wouldn't know his final years, which sadly is exactly what happened. Right, and, and I think at that point in his life, he was ready to start making amends for some of the mistakes he made. And George knew he made plenty of mistakes. And, and I think he realized one of the worst ones was firing the most beloved and popular player in Yankee history. And uh, so he said yes. And Waldman talked to people over at the, at the museum, Rose Kelly, who was the, uh, helped found the museum, and, and her uh, husband, who were friends with the Bearers, and Dave Kaplan, who was the executive director. And when they went to Yogi, they told that he, he just erupted and started yelling that he wasn't going to do it. And they were shocked. You know, they'd never seen Yogi get mad like this before. And he storms out of the room. He goes into the room with his sons where they where they're, have their memorabilia business at, at the museum. And the sons play the grandchild card. And they say, you know, your grandchildren, you've got nine grandchildren at the time. And they say, you know, they've never seen you in the place where you, you know, where you became famous. Don't you want to see, let them see the way the fans react to you. And I got to tell you, I, I had my first grandchild who's 22 months years old, 22 months old. And Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. And I got to tell you that that's the winning card because, you know, there, <laughs> that was it. You know, he collapsed at that. You know, you, you play the grandfather card and, and, and that's it. I just want to mention one other thing. You bought 500 pages, a lot of pages. And one of the, one, the way I wrote this book and, you know, you, you said you couldn't put it down and I greatly appreciate you saying that is it's written like a novel. It's all in present tense. It's all dialogues and scenes. There's no, he said, this happened, that happened. I figure, I know there's, there was a big story to write here and it was going to be a long story. And if I was going to keep people's attention, it needed to be written in a way that was going to hold people's attention. Oh, it's, it's, and, it certainly did. <laughs> and I think that, you know, writing in the present tense is, far more interesting and writing all scenes, not telling people, but showing people, you know, when people tell me that they feel like they're in the room with Yogi when he was with the Magio, that that's, that that's when I know I've done my job and, right. and I've heard that. And that's what I, that's why I think that people, you know, the people who have told me they like the book, I think that's why they like it. And where can people get the book? Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, Amazon, um, you know, this is, this being a pandemic, Amazon sold out in the first day wow. and could not get books in, did not get books for 21 days. Wow. Because of, you know, they had to prioritize the, the sure. warehouse slots and I can't complain about the essentials being prioritized over, a, over a book. Of course. Um, as, as much as I of, of my life as I put into this book, so yeah, it took it took that long to get the book back into. But now Amazon, Barnes Noble, 
you go on my website, johnpessa.com, you and you hit indie books, you'll you you find out where all the independent book dealers are near you. And I think it's important to kind of keep those people in business as well. Absolutely. So that's a good place to buy books too. And you can also go on the pandemic book club. It's pbbclub.com. Go down to John Pessa and there's the link to go buy the yogi book right there. Also, so that's, that's a good place to pick it up as well. I believe it's a link to the, uh, like you said, an independent bookstore. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so it's, much. Like, like, like Len said, couldn't put it down. Fantastic book. I, re- I really appreciate it. This has been fun. As you can tell, I can talk about Yogi for a long time. Sure. Yeah, well, so can we. And can't wait for you to write your next book because we'd love to have you back on. So. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to take a, take a little bit more of a rest. And, um, you know, I don't know whether it'll be in baseball. I'm thinking about doing a book on Dean Smith, who's long intrigued me, the, the uh, famous mm-hmm. basketball coach mm-hmm. from North Carolina, right. who I absolutely hated when I went to the University of Maryland. But the guy was, was a great coach and, a, and integrated the ACC, was a death row advocate, you know, I mean, just a, just a really incredible human being on top of being a great baseball coach. A lot like Yogi. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, and we really appreciate it. Same here, Jeff. Take care, Len. Who doesn't love Yogi? Oh, I love Yogi. You know how everybody says, who would you like to have, get to see play, get to, you know, have a meal with? And, you know, a lot of people say Yogi Berra, Lou Gehrig. No, they say Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. I would, I would want to sit with Yogi Berra. Yeah. He'll keep you laughing. And you know what, Len? You thought you knew a lot about Yogi Berra, but John Pesson taught us a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the, the book is fantastic. It is a great book. The stories are terrific. And you know what? Yogi Berra, and, and we, we said this in the interview, of course, but they make him out. To, you always hear about Yogi Berra and the yogiisms, and, you know, you know, they make him out to be that he wasn't so smart. Yogi Berra was smart, was sly as a fox. Yogi Berra knew exactly what he was doing. Yogi Berra was quite brilliant. He really, he knew how to market himself. Brilliant. Yes. And then, who do we have up next? Now we have Jeff Reiser from Dead Broke Barbecue. YouTube, Dead Broke Barbecue. Enjoy. We have a guest with us from the world of barbecue. If you're not familiar with this guy, you better be. You will soon. And I don't know why you're not. You know, you watch YouTube for cooking tips on barbecue. That's where a lot of people go. And you've got to go to this guy's site. The name is Jeff Reiser. We're going to just call him Reiser. He is from Dead Broke Barbecue. He has the YouTube channel. He has a Sunday interview chat that we're going to talk about. And he also is an embedded correspondent on the Barbecue Central show. And if you didn't know it, he is one hell of a singer. So (laughs) we have much to talk about. We are so excited to welcome to this show. None other than Ricer. Ricer, welcome to Baseball and BBQ. 
Hey, thank you, fellas. You know, Leonard and Jeff, I really appreciate you guys bringing me on tonight. I'm excited. Let's let's start talking a little bit about barbecue. And like I told Jeff earlier in an email, I said, "Hey, I know just bits and pieces about baseball. So, but if you talk about the '82 Brewers, I can maybe fill in a few blanks there. So we'll see." <laughs> All right. All right. Well, so. Let, let's start right there. Do, do we make him sing right away, Jeff? I mean, <laughs> so, all right. So, Ricer, yeah. you are new to the Barbecue Central show, right? They have a segment. Now, we had Greg Rempe on. That show is, of course, what, and, and we've said it, we said it to him. It's what every barbecue show wants to be, aspires to be. Yes. You know, he really is. I know he's a Howard Stern fan. He is the Howard Stern of barbecue podcasts, and he doesn't even refer to himself as a podcast. Enjoy listening to you on that show. How did that happen? Because you came in, you took over for someone else. So take us through it. Well, um, it's a combination of two fellas. Um, um, Steve Ray was on the on the embedded correspondence for a while and he found me on YouTube when I was a smaller channel I'm still a teeny small channel I mean I'm not even at 10,000 yet but he found me and introduced me to John Solberg and John after watching for a few months of my videos threw me a hook and said hey would you like to maybe join us once in a while and I was kind of like flabbergasted and at first I didn't really believe that it was true I'm like what this ain't really you know because I knew a little bit about the barbecue central show but I, I I'm not gonna lie to you I am a youtuber so I get most of my barbecue v- is viewing it's viewing well I checked it out and I'm like heck yeah man these guys have fun Greg is a incredible like leader and a polished professional when it comes to barbecue. I, I, I mean, I would love to be as cool as him. And I've told him, he's been on my show. And, and you know, obviously, I, we do a little audio checks at times. He, he's just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to barbecue and barbecue people. And so next thing you know, I threw Greg a, a little video with me and... Greg is very big into audio, obviously. Well, I had decent audio. It wasn't like it was going to be an issue with that problem. You know, that wasn't going to be a problem. I wasn't going to have to spend all kinds of, you know, change from the piggy bank to go ahead and buy stuff. So, yeah, he threw me out there and gave me a try. You know, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a 100% full-time embedded correspondent on there. I mean, but he knows whenever he needs somebody, he can call up Ricer and Ricer will come on. So, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how it happened. John really probably is the guy that went to bat for me to say, hey, we've got to bring this guy from Wisconsin, you know, uh, on the show. And they gave me a shot. And, yeah, I've been on there a couple months. And it, it's a lot of fun. And I've, I'll be real honest with you. This is the thing that I love about it the podcast outside of YouTube is that you get to learn so many things other than just YouTube barbecuers. Okay. You learn about comp cooks, you learn about cookers, you learn, and that's what Greg's show kind of inspires people to Mm -hmm. learn outside of just YouTube videos, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so, so yeah, I, I, I'm very honored and it's a huge, huge, uh, 
uh, reward, let's say, kind of a thing for my hard work that they thought I was worthy enough to at least get a shot. So I, I appreciate everything they've done for me. I like to know, uh, how'd you come up with the name Dead Broke BBQ? <laughs> There's a long story, but I'll try to sum it down into a four or five minute conversation. No, really, I was going to start a channel back in 2017. And I work, I, I work in the utilities industry. And my buddies always knew I cooked. I would throw a Facebook post up there once in a while and all that. And I said, I'm going to do a YouTube channel because of, this is a long story, all right? My kids, uh, my, my boys like to cook, and I'm a little bit older than them. I'm a, I'm a late father, let's say, okay? I, I sat in the tavern too long when I was younger and didn't grow up until I got into my like, early 30s. Well, so my kids, they enjoy cooking, and I'm like, well, hey, I might not be around forever, and I only have a few videos of my father. He passed away a little early, not too bad, but he still passed away a little early. And I, I, it was winter time, and I live in Wisconsin, and it was minus twenty five degrees on Christmas. We typically always do a nice, you know, Weber kettle ribeye. You know what I mean? I'm going to do a prime rib, and we're going to do that for Christmas. But it was like stupid out, and I'm like, okay, we're going to punt. I've never cooked a ribeye in the oven, so I hurried up. Went on YouTube, <laughs> and, and, and I stumbled across T-Roy Cooks, and mm. T-Roy does a ribeye in the oven, and you know how when you watch YouTube, all of a sudden, they'll suggest more videos from that creator, sure. right? and he does a video where he talks about his son, that he's doing videos for his son, and it just like snapped instantly in my brain right there that this is what I got to do. I got to do this for my kids and my grandkids and who knows what the heck we have, you know, aliens or whatever that comes around the earth that they can enjoy ricer. Okay. So I, I've always been interested in cameras and making videos. I've made videos back in high school with my friends in, in, in classes, never got any film training or anything like that. It's just a hobby. And I made dead broke barbecue, but I didn't have a name and I'm walking around in the, in the engineering department for an electric company. And I tell my engineer, yeah, I want to do this is so bad, you know, but geez, I'm just so dang dead broke. And he just went, well, you just need your channel. <laughs> I said, all right, there we go. So, and that's how it happened. And I like, yeah, I like it. My wife was like, no, you can't call yourself dead broke. You're not like dead, dead broke. And I'm like, I'm dead broke. You know, I can't have everything. So that's how dead broke kind of came alive. It went for about a year. We had some big changes at this utility company. Uh, unfortunately, I was on a lower man 11 years into that place and they had to make cutbacks in every department and I was let go. So I waited a whole year and a half before I could actually post anything because I got a new job instantly because of my training. But I had to dedicate myself to this new company and learn what I was doing there. Well, last year in March, I started a YouTube channel called Dead Broke. Oh, I should say it was in, 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 in the seven, 2017, the channel was made, but the first video was posted back in March, 2019. So I like it. it. That's a long yeah. story, but that's, yeah, it I, that's okay. That, no, I, 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 I I like it too. I saw the uh, last week, and it was uh, you know I like we interact with people on, on, on the show, and uh, you get all the comments. You respond to the comments. That's great. No, thanks, thanks. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, see, 
Go ahead. Go ahead, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am a blabbermouth. Part of my job is being a blabbermouth. I am a negotiator, let's say, for utility companies. And so I'm, I, I don't mind talking to people. I enjoy talking to people. So it's easy for me to do some of this crap that I do. <laughs> I, I was just thinking if it was me, it would be, it would be dead, deader, deadest barbecue. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I'd call it uh, dead as a you know doornail barbecue or whatever. <laughs> now, you have the Sunday chat mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. you interview someone. How do you, I saw that live on YouTube, but then I couldn't find it to watch it. Is is that once it's live? Can, is it on your channel? Those yeah, it should be. It should be okay. posted. Uh, some of the, okay. some of my some of uh, I have. You know, I call it barbecue tavern talk. And the reason why mm-hmm. I call that is because when I was younger, and my buddies and all of us, we went into the tavern and we just sat around and BSed. It was just talk about anything. And it, I'm like, well, I don't want to have a complete structure. In I'll be real honest with you. Everything that I do, video wise, even for the most part, everything that I do on my live stream is winging it. I, I'd prefer to wing it. I think you get more natural. Sometimes you know how it is. You I mean, sometimes you're more prepared. A guy like Greg spends 12 hours preparing for a show. Well, number one, I don't have enough time to put that much into it. But number two, it's really not me. It's not me. I have to wing things because my natural personality is going to come out more. Now, I will tell you, I've been thinking about bullet pointing some of my videos because when you get done editing and you're like, ah, you dumb bozo, you forgot to add this. But so, so the whole live thing was just to talk with barbecuers. I didn't want to like rope myself into anything. I I enjoy video. So I have some people that are lined up in the future to talk video. I actually, I got a guy, his name is Andrew from the, the, the grill sergeant is coming on. He's a crazy great Photoshop guy. So him and I have that background, but he also likes to cook. I'll bring just about anybody on my show. If they have value into the show, I like bringing the small guys because they're nervous. They're not used to doing all this type of stuff. And that's fun. So talking on my live stream is supposed to be relaxing. You know, my videos might be a little more jacked up, but my live stream is supposed to be, we're sitting back, we're going to, you know, drink some suds, crack some cans, and maybe do a couple totes, you know. So Jeff, there's hope for us. He said he, he brings on the little guys. And so yeah, I'd love to bring you guys there's, on. There's, there's hope. There's no one little than us. <laughs> hey, I'm sure you guys get way more views than 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 I do, to be honest. So, you know, I mean, my show is like a bunch of tubers that watch me, a bunch of good friends. Well, and, you know, you know what though, your show is very interesting. Your videos, it's it's amazing to me doing this show and listening to Greg. Watching, I've seen T. Roy cooks. You know, T. Roy's cooking on the grill, cooking every day for you. You know, T. Roy cooks responsibly. You know, and I and and I give him a plug like he needs it, right? And of course, baby back maniac. And I mean, there's so many people on there. What you find is that everybody is at a different level, Mm -hmm. and the things that you think are simple are, you know, I I mean, even even in, in our case, like. Like Jeff, when, when we started this, Jeff was, enjoys barbecue very much, but right. wasn't a huge, you know, griller, smoker. And now his level has increased 
you know, exponentially. Right. It has. But things, you know, like things that come naturally to us, like perfect example, taking off the back of the, uh, you know, the, the silver skin, you know, the from the uh, a rack of ribs, right? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? The membrane, Which, filling it off. Yeah, the membrane, right? It is something that is second nature. But, mm-hmm. but somebody who knows nothing about barbecue, wants to get into it or whatever, that's new to them. Your mm-hmm. videos serve a purpose, and I think they're great. Now, well, how do you come up with you, – you, you have a lot of them. So <laughs> how are you coming up with what you're going to cook, which cooker you're going to use? You know, take us through that. Um, well, you know, when it comes to YouTube, it's all about views and subscribers. It really is. You know, it, it, YouTube is about view time and subscribers because before you can actually get monetized, you have to have a thousand subscribers in 4,000 hours watched. So a small YouTuber just needs to pound out videos I always tell people, you know, people ask me, Hey, how did you do this? And what'd you do? And why are you doing it? And I'm like, I pressed record, <laughs> you know, really, I just <laughs> pressed record and, and that, and that's what it takes. And, and you can start off with your cell phone and iMovie or windows movie maker and all these, you know, free ones. And then you can work yourself up into some more pro stuff. Don't, don't, spend a ton of money right out of the gate yourself up you know i mean but but i came into this saying that i have a goal to be a bigger youtuber in barbecue and i actually kind of want to be the voice of wisconsin barbecue and i'll be the first person to tell you that the only thing that i know how to cook is this crap that my dad taught me how to do now i've stepped out of the box a little bit because he wasn't a big beefer okay he didn't cook rib rib ribeyes all the time T-bones all the time, porterhouse. But brisket? No, I never saw him one time cook a brisket. Jerky? Hell heck yeah. He cooked a ton of jerky. So everything I kind of learned was just as a young kid around him. The um, So my videos, I, I have, I mean, if I had a thicker wallet, I would have more cookers. And I, and I but I always kind of do the things that I've been doing for 30-ish years. I mean, my mom and dad kicked me out when I was 18. They said, get out of here. No, I'm a kid. And I moved down to the farm and kind of took over and lived with my grandma because my grandpa passed away and I kind of took helped her out for a while. And then we had to move her to town, but I stayed on the farm. And it, we weren't raising cattle. We just, you know, had crops and stuff. And I lived up there while I was a single guy. I had to figure out how to feed myself, you know, so I kind of did what my dad taught me. And my dad taught me a lot about pork, let's say. Let's say his big thing was pork shoulder and full hogs. His best friend was a butcher and they would they were firemen and they did the fireman dance and they and all that. So my reasoning behind a lot of my cooks are just stuff that I've done so many times. It's real simple. I get a lot of crap from some of my insider friends about that I do a lot of different company rubs and I should do my own rubs. Well, I, I have rubs that, that I use, but they're, I always call them boring, you know? So, so I, I, I kind of like to try different flavors in, in that. And, and YouTube really is a hundred percent influencer. And the more that you can, some people will call it shill. Some people call it shill. Some people call it influencer. And, and so if you can do your influencer right and not be called too much shill, 
you'll get more companies that'll want to deal with you and work with you. And I always try to do cooks. I mean, I'm going all over on the board on this fellas, but sorry, but sorry. Um, you, you know, really hundred percent is like, I just do the stuff that I love to eat and cook. You know, mm-hmm. my, my favorite in the past five or six years has become beef ribs. I can't wait until I do a video with beef ribs. I mean, really. Now, I've cooked enough brisket. I'm no professional. I can never call myself a, a pit master. When people have said, hey, are you a pit master? No, I'm just fat. I'm just fat. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 so it, it's not really anything to do with that. Because, I, 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 you know, I, I've had people, like good close friends that are really good barbecuers that will tell me stuff like, well, you don't really know how to cook. No, I don't. I don't know the the science and all this crap behind cooking. I just make good stuff and people never barfed on their plate when they come over and eat with me. So I'm doing all right. They don't tell me, I ain't coming over here. Every time I say I'm having a cookout, I got a list that wants to come over. So it's good enough, you know? And, And I think like too much stuff, there's very famous people that can kick butt on a cooker and they know a lot more than I do. I'm a backyard barbecuer that likes to entertain people and I make videos, you know, so that's really it. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. That's right. Nothing that's, wrong what with most, that. that's what most of America is. Right. right. <laughs> you know, is backyard cooking. You know, yeah. weekend grilling, uh, smoking, uh, whatever. Oh, a racer. I, I have two grills. Uh, I have a one grill and a smoker. I know Len has two smokers and a grill. How many uh, do you have? I know you have the uh, master build now, but that, yeah. that's new. So yeah. uh, what do you got there? Okay, well, I, I've honed off a bunch of them, to be honest with you. I've given a few away. I have right now a Weber kettle. I just got a new slow and sear kettle because I, I, I really, they got a lot of mods on it. It's kind of cool. Everything that like a lot of these guys that are, I'm in, I'm technically not challenged. I'm, what, I'm thinking the other word. I, I can do things. My dad taught me how to weld and all that stuff, but I don't like to really modify a cooker a lot, but this little slow and sear thing, so I just got that today, is dropped on my doorstep. I'm excited to try that. Uh, I have a Pit Boss pellet grill. I have an Oklahoma Joe's pellet grill. I have Oklahoma Oklahoma Joe's Bronco. I have a Pit Barrel cooker. Uh, I have the Master Built. Uh, And then a couple like no name, just charcoal, like I got a Kingsford charcoal that I cooked really good steaks on but that thing is like duct tape and (laughs) jb welded back together i usually just cook potatoes on that thing now but and i got a a, this is i got my wife bought me a gas grill oh gosh it must be five years ago a gas grill combo it's got a it's got a charcoal cooker and a gas grill on it i have never hung a tank on it it's so funny and i'm like i have to give this thing away it's a great for cooking steaks but I've never even used a gas grills. I haven't used a gas grill for 20 years, to be honest with you. Oh, so, wow. so, so this thing sits in the backyard or on our deck and I'm like, I'm just going to give it away to a friend, you know, but so that's kind of where I have right now. I had an offset that it was a handmade offset that my dad must've picked up at an auction. Too heavy, too bulky. I didn't move it into town when I moved off the farm 
and I left it there. I really want an offset, a real offset cooker again, you know, a quarter inch, half inch steel type of thing, firebox mm-hmm. insulated. I want something like that, but we'll wait until I get the right one, you know. But but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I mean, I've had I've had some other like cheapo offset cookers. And I gave them away. And I said, here, don't use it as an offset because you're going to be chasing temps for four hours straight, right. you know, and, but uh, use it for a charcoal grill. So, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now in my, my arsenal, let's say. Mm-hmm. See, his wife encourages him to get more. <laughs> that's why she, that's why she's his wife. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, oh, I know. Here's a funny story, Royce. When, when I had a, uh, you know, a Weber Smoky Mountain mm-hmm. and I got the pit barrel mm-hmm. and, and when it arrived, my wife said, oh, wait, so then you, you don't need the other, you don't need the, and she didn't know the name of it, but the Weber yeah. Smoky Mountain. And I said, what do you mean? So, well, you know, you have this one. I said, yeah, and now I have two. Two, right. <laughs> I'm your party. <laughs> I mean, I'm not getting rid of what I, mean, exactly. I got another, I'd have three. <laughs> and you're, and you're exactly right. You know, and that's the thing about cookers. I mean, like with me, I just think it's so intriguing how somebody in, in the time and the development, because like, it, let's face it, everybody can't wait until a cooker doesn't, like past the grade, you know, that comes out of Walmart or Lowe's or something. They're all waiting, you know, because they're, I go back to the Chevy Dodge thing. Okay. It's a Chevy Dodge syndrome or Ford. Let's throw Ford in there too. I drive a Chevy and anything that Ford makes sucks. So everybody's waiting for that new cooker to come out and like fail. Let's really look at even the smoke fire. There's a lot of people that were hoping that thing failed and it kind of did. Let's be, you know, on the other part, Mm. it did, you know I mean? It did. I'm going to tell you that I was hoping that thing was going to kick butt because I love my kettle. Now there's one, one cooker from Weber that's on my list that I've never had. And that's a Weber Smoky Mountain. Never had one. I've always loved them, but I never had one. I just started to get into the barrel cooking when I bought the pit, uh, the pit barrel. When I bought the pit barrel, it was the first time. I, it, it's so cool. I mean, you see why the comp guys are doing it. Those gateway drum smokers. You see why these guys are running those rigs. as hot and fast, and you're going to cook in a hurry. Um, but you, you, just to go back to things that I feel – that every company that is developing a cooker is actually trying to put their heart and soul into this cooker. They're not trying to just make something and make $50 and have it fail. There's, there's not a single company that thinks that way. Cause if they are, they're never going to be around huh. like the Oklahoma Joe's Ryder DLX that I have that pit, that, that, that pellet grill. I've had a, a, a igniter go out on it. Big deal. I ran it how many times? 60 times in the, in the igniter went out. Okay, well, I got a new igniter. People are always looking for these excuses. But then I also, I try to tell people that, wait a minute, how much you pay for it? Well, I paid $550. Yeah, you paid $550. What do you expect? You want to buy something that's championship, you're talking three grand. So wake up, smell the roses because, you know, so 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 long story, I, I keep on going off sidetrack. So if you guys got to reel me in, go ahead. But, you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I will tell you 100% that 
every cooker has a purpose. Um, some are better than mm-hmm. others. Really, some are better than others. And if you guys, you guys got a couple cookers, well, it's intriguing to add a different cooker to learn a different cooking style. I never mm-hmm. cooked on a barrel. When I cooked on that pit, that I have, and it's old now. I mean, this video is almost a year. It probably is a year old now. When I when I cooked on that, did some ribs on that pit barrel. Well, holy crap! I had a a rib rack of baby backs split in half and fall in the fire. You know what the heck is going on? We've had that. We've done yeah. that. We yeah. had that. Yeah. Well, once I learned that, like, what? Well, okay, bozo, double hook it. You know, you're cooking pretty hot, man. So, so once you kind of learn, it's because that's that should be the the real ultimate goal when you're cooking is you should try to learn something. You should try to learn something. Everything shouldn't just be I'm a orangutan and I'm going to press the button. It shouldn't be that way. And right. that's kind of one thing that I like. That's why I got the master built. I mean, it's really affordable gravity fed cooker that come on. My ultimate gravity fed cooker is a stumps. I mean, I want a stump cooker so bad, but I can't tell my wife, um, yeah, can I spend $2,500 on this? No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Cause she knows I want to, she knows I want a Lone Star grills, like $2,500 offset, you know? So, you know, I mean, there's, there's times and places, but I, I applaud master build to come out with, it's not stumps quality, but any backyard barbecuer can get into this cooker for under, $500 and you wait a couple months, it's going to be under 400, you know? So, so it's, it's innovation and stuff like that, that I think why I always get intrigued into different cookers. I, I wish I had a hundred of them. I'd probably have to build a, you know, big, you know, 20 or 40 by 80 freaking uh, pole barn to store them all in. But Hey, we could do a lot of videos, right? <laughs> and we're going to have part two of Jeff Reiser on our next episode. Right, Len? Yeah. And that's good because I, I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of it. Definitely. You know, Jeff, I want to just talk about uh, barbecue for a second. Sure. Right? Yep. There is a product that I don't think a lot of people purchase. At least I haven't seen a lot of people purchase it. And that is barbecue gloves. Barbecue gloves come in all sorts of styles. Amazon is a great place to buy barbecue gloves. I hate to say it. <laughs> he doesn't promote the show. Jeff Bezos certainly doesn't need us to promote his site, but he has so many different varieties. I have a pair of silicone barbecue gloves, but of course they have ones that are, uh, you know, silicone. They have the, the ones that are, I guess, le- I don't know if they're leather, but they're or raw. They're made of material that will resist the heat. Let's put it that way. All right. If you go on Amazon or you go to your local barbecue store or maybe Home Depot or Lowe's or one of those places, it's great to have because when you are perfect example is you start cooking and you have to move a grate. You, you, you certainly can't use your hand. A lot of people will try and use tongs. And even with these gloves, they don't, they're not totally heat resistant where you could just keep them on for a long period of time. But if you have to do something quickly, depending on the gloves you're using, they're great to use. There are different things you'll do on your grill. Guys, grills get hot. Is that, 
Am I Captain Obvious? But so many times you hear about people, they burn their hands. Guys, use the barbecue gloves. Buy, they're not expensive. I mean, I'm not counting anyone's shekels, but you can buy in, you know, some that are inexpensive. Then, of course, there are some that are more expensive. There are some that go further down your arm. They go like to, almost to your elbow. But I recommend that you buy barbecue gloves. Jeff, do you have barbecue gloves? I do have barbecue gloves. I have one of, I don't think it's silicon, but I, it, it's heat resistance where I can, you know, if I have to in my pit barrel, if I have to grab down, you know, drop something into the coals, I can just quickly grab it out of there and not, not hurt my hand. Right. Yeah. yeah. Smart. Definitely. Uh, I'm not saying you have to stand there when you, when you have the spatula in your hand and use the barbecue gloves, but it's very good to have a pair on hand. Yes. It's just one of those things you should have when you're grilling, when you're smoking. My recommendation of the week, <laughs> if we had a segment where I recommended a product, barbecue gloves. Excellent. Very good, Len. And, and, you know, again, if you want to join the show, give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Tweet us. We're at Baseball and BBQ. Check us on our YouTube page. Make some comments on our Facebook page. We're posting things there all the time. We have our video, some videos of our past interviews. So check that out as well. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly. Com. Jeff, can I just say that, and not that I have to give their podcast a plug, but I don't care. I'll plug them. You were a guest, but a you weren't a planned guest on, uh, what was it, a Metzian podcast? Yes, a Metzian podcast. Right. You happened to call up. You, you called up. You wanted a rant about your beloved Metzies. Yes. And they kept you on. They did. And I I understand why they kept you on, Jeff, because you were, I kid you not, you were a highlight on that show. (laughs) Thank you. So if you want to check that out, it's, I think it's episode 99. It's called the Metzian Podcast. So check them out. Yeah. So they, if they're listening, I'm plugging you. Thank you. On that podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Leonard. All right. Okay. Why don't you take us out? Well, let's go out with our favorite favorite song, Baseball Always Brings You Home, by Shel Krakowski and Dave Dresser. See you next time. See you.